Welcome to Hosanna Christian Fellowship. We're so glad you're here to worship with us this morning. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we have a very special guest speaker that's here with us today. But to preface all of this, uh, last week in our last Bible study, we just concluded uh, Revelation chapter 13. And we've been talking a lot about the end times, specifically during the tribulation period of what's going to be taking place as the Antichrist comes along the scene. And then last week specifically, we looked at his sidekick, his lackey that comes along with him, the false prophet, who's going to be instrumental in forming a one-world religion somehow, some way, through his gifted rhetoric and oratory, is going to get all of the different religions of the world to come together and to uh, agree to, to be unified under one banner. And it's false. That's why he's called the false prophet. The things he speaks are lies. Well, as we've mentioned through our study of Revelation, you know, Satan is the father of lies, and he has been working from the very beginning, and he will be working through to the very end to lie to mankind about the truths of who God is. And he has done that through many different ways, but chiefly one of them is by the raising up of uh, false religions cults and others that, that want to proclaim a different truth about who God is, and specifically a different truth about who Jesus is. And so today, we're going to have someone here who is, um, I will introduce, to, introduce him to you later, but I just want to give you guys the idea that um, this individual is an expert uh, in what he does, in specifically in the ideas and the concepts of Christianity uh, versus Islam. And, and Islam is one of the, if not the largest and fastest growing religion in the world today, according to who you talk to, and being equipped and ready and educated and, and, and just ready to have a conversation with someone who is an adherent of Islam so that you could talk them through um, the issues with Islam and really to highlight the truths of Christianity is a very, very important skill, not just in the end times, but today. And so we're going to be educated and taught today. I'm very excited for you guys to, to hear what um, our guest speaker has to say. But right now, we are going to open with a time of worship. We do this every Sunday before we get into the Word because we know God is worthy. God is almighty. He is worth our worship. He is the one who died for our sins. He is the only and one true God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came to live and to die for us, and then who rose from the dead on the third day. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for today. God, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to, to gather together to hear your word. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, God. Lord, we know that we are in a world today God, where the enemy has, has labored in overtime to spread false truths about who you are, to discredit your character, to discredit your word. Lord, he has even raised up all these false religions and cults, Lord, with their own quote-unquote holy books, Lord, that are meant to deceive the people. And so, Lord, we know that you have called us to be ready in season and out of season to have an answer for the faith that is within us, God. Lord, we pray, God, today that, that you would just speak to us and equip us, Lord. But right now, we want to worship you, God. We want to praise your holy name because you are God Almighty and we love you. We are so thankful for the salvation we have through the death of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for the life we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the hope we have in our salvation. So, God, be blessed. We honor you this morning, God, as we worship and praise your holy name. We thank you for everything, and we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, our speaker today, um, I'm really blessed to have him because um, his knowledge is, is just thorough in, in how to speak to, as, as Rick was saying, to um, people that are adherents of Islam and how to speak to them about the differences between Islam and Christianity and the truth of Christianity. But I was very blessed because um, uh, Dr. Jay Smith, who is our speaker today, he was with us back in 2018 and shared with us. And it's been a video that's been up on our YouTube channel since then. And uh, from then until now, it's had over 250,000 views worldwide. It is the number one most viewed video on our YouTube channel. And the comment section is just 
on fire all day, every day with people that are both hateful and angry at, at Dr. Smith as well as people that are in support of it. But what I felt um, extremely timely about his being here with us today is not only have we been talking about the false prophet and, and false religions and stuff, but about three weeks ago, uh, we got notice, and I don't know if I could say this online, we might cut it later, but uh, three weeks ago, we got notice from YouTube that Dr. Smith's video was blocked by the government of Pakistan, in Pakistan. <laughs> and, and yeah, we celebrate that because it's having an effect, but the, uh, the interesting part about that is, is some of you may, may know, some of you may not know, there is a, a massive genocide against Christians taking place in Pakistan right now, uh, perpetrated by Muslims. And it was just interesting, right? Not coincidental that the government had uh, notified YouTube, hey, this video uh, is, is whatever, hate speech, whatever, and they blocked it. Well, at that time, we actually had a, a, another speaker lined up today that was going to be here from the conference. And unfortunately, um, well, fortunately, I would say at this point, that speaker ended up having another engagement. And then uh, Pastor George called me and he goes, hey, would, would you like to have Dr. J. Smith come and share with your body? And I went, wow, that's, that's, that would be amazing. This was the day after the video got blocked in Pakistan. And I thought, wow, I could see God going, oh, you think you're going to block a video, Pakistan? I'm going to bring Dr. J. Smith back. You know, we're going to do another one. And uh, so we are very excited. Um, Dr. J. Smith is an international, the international director of the Fender Center for Apologetics in London, England. And he's been working with Muslims for over 35 years, serving with the Brethren in Christ World Missions and serving in the last 25 years in London, England. Most of his time is spent traveling to numerous different countries to teach Christian and Muslim apologetics and polemics, as much, as much of which he has learned from weekly forays into the famous Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London. Jay has two master's degrees in divinity, one from Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary and a, a degree in Islamics from Fuller Seminary, and he has a PhD in apologetics and polemics from Melbourne School of Theology in Australia. And so this individual has been uh, spending a lifetime honing the skills, and he is here with us this morning to share those skills and that knowledge with us. And so please help me welcome up Dr. Jay Smith. It'd be nice if some of you could come forward because we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to make some of you Muslims. Oh, yeah, don't worry. We'll convert you back. We'll convert you back before the end of the service. Uh, I've been, one of the things I like to do is do a comparison between Islam and Christianity. And many people think that we share an awful lot in common. How many people think we share the same God? Let's just see a raise of hands. Okay, two over here think we share the same God. I'm going to shoot that down uh, before you leave because the, obviously this idea that we share an awful lot in common, we need to be careful of. An awful lot of what they, uh, people assume because we do believe in God, they believe in God, we believe in the God of Abraham, they believe in the God of Abraham, it must be the same God. We share the same scriptures. How many people believe we share the same scriptures? None, all right? How about the prophetic line? Share the same prophetic line. Still none. Okay, I want you to, and what I want to do today is I want to do some comparisons back and forth with Islam and Christianity. I'm going to make you all Muslims today, all right? So to do that, I want to hear you say, Allahu Akbar. No, no, come on, a lot better than that. Allahu Akbar. There's a few down there, okay. So you're gonna be Muslims. I want you to think like Muslims. I want you to act like Muslims. If you don't like what I'm saying, get up and yell at me if you, can, if you want to. I'm up higher than you are, it makes me feel comfortable. I feel like I'm right back in speaker's corner. But certainly what I want you to do is try to put your Muslim caps on this morning, all right? Try to think, as a Muslim, what I'm talking about in the different categories that I'm going through, see how you would respond. Meanwhile, on this side, you're going to remain Christians. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Come on, say it louder than that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, look at the passion they have. I think they're already winning this battle. And by the time we go through these different categories, you'll see, you'll probably want to move over to this side of the room. But you stay put, stay put. We'll bring you over later on. Now, what I want to do is I want to understand the differences. I think the first thing we need to do is open up one scripture, actually two small verses, 
Because these two verses, I think, are the best verses to help understand really what's different between Christianity and Islam. And there are two verses that I remember reading many, many years ago. I was engaging with Muslims in London, and I would go down every Wednesday to uh, Russell Square, which is just behind the university where I was studying at that time, uh, and we would have on Wednesday afternoons, we would have a discussion on a different topic every week. And I would be one person against 30, sometimes 40 Muslims, which made me feel right at home. And I remember we were talking about the Khilafah, which is the Islamic State. And uh, we were introducing this idea of the Khilafah over here, and I was trying to show the other side of it, and I was not making much headway. I did not feel at all adequate. I went home. I was frustrated. I got into the bathtub. Uh, when I get frustrated, and I was watching the steam dissipate up into the ceiling, when suddenly I realized, hold on a minute. I had just been reading Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, get out Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3 is an interesting, well, the whole chapter is, the, is rather interesting. This is where everything went wrong, am I correct? This is the fall of man. This is where Adam and Eve, they had sinned against God. I've had that chapter read to me for years, and of course, you've, I've grown up with that chapter, and I've always assumed that that is, where, that is why I do not eat fruit today. You ask my wife, I will not eat fruit because of that first fruit. I have an Apple computer, I cover up the back because I don't want anybody to see that bite that's been taken out of the apple because of that first fruit, because of that chapter. But there are two small verses in that chapter, verse 8 and 9. I'm going to read these two verses. I don't know how many of you remember these two verses, but let's read it right now. Verse 8 and verse 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, you've all heard that before, right? That's nothing new for you Christians. You Muslims haven't heard it, obviously, because this is the first time you're ever hearing it. Just say yes to everything I say, okay? That's what Islam means. It means to be obedient. Muslim is someone who's obedient. Be obedient this morning, all right? Yes, you've not heard that before. But on this side, this is quite normal, isn't it? Have you ever heard a, ma a message? Has Nathan ever done a message on these two verses before? Have you, Nathan? Long time ago. Well, now from here on out, you'll probably use many times coming back to these two verses. Because these two verses, if you're working with Muslims, if you're working with Muslims, these two verses are probably the best verses to start with. Why? Because if you look at these two verses, this tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. It tells us what it once was like, what has gone wrong, and what needs to get rectified. Am I correct? Probably not. You don't hear. In fact, probably Nathan is saying, Jay, you're isogeting the verse. You're putting too much into it. I may stand accused, Nathan, but hold on for the next 45 minutes. I want you to hold on and see if I'm not correct. When you look at these two verses, see, these two verses are great because for Muslims, these are the things they need to hear in your conversations with them. Was it Rick that was just up here? Rick? Where are you, Rick? He's gone. He's left. Way at the back. Come in the front. Why are you way back there? I want you to be my Muslim. I want you to sit right here. Okay, Rick? Because I'm going to talk to you just to show you how easy this is. Now, Rick, I'm going to call him, let's see, I'm going to call you Abdul, okay? You be Abdul today, all right? Abdul, are you hearing me? Allahu Akbar, Abdul. Go on, let's hear you say it. No, do it with a little more passion than that. Right at the front. Abdul, Allahu Akbar. Say it with real passion. Allahu Akbar. There you go. See, he's relearning his craft. So I'm going to look to you specifically, and you're going to represent all the other Muslims here. You have the same story in your Quran, don't you? Just say yes. Yeah. You've got it right here in the Quran, and it's in chapter, well, when you look at it, it's in three different places. It's in chapter 2, it's in chapter 7, and it's in chapter 20. There you are. Okay, now you have that same story, and it's very similar to our story, isn't it? except there are two salient differences. Right away, you see, where is your Garden of Eden? Is it on Earth or is it up in space? It's up in space. He's, gonna ha he's, he's just a brand new Muslim. He's only been a Muslim for about two minutes. So bear with him, all right? I'm going to have to train him up. But that's right. Just say, yes, yes, yes. Now, Dr. Smith, you know what you're talking about. It's up in space. Okay, over here. You're gonna, what's your name? Eric, okay, Eric, you're going to be my Christian, all right? 
uh, Eric, where's your Garden of Eden? Is it up in space or is it on earth? Bingo. Already you're talking about two different gardens. Are you seeing that right immediately? This garden on this side is up in space. This garden on this side is down on earth. Obviously, that means that the, yours should be closer to God, right? You would think so. But is Allah in your garden? Absolutely not. Does Allah ever come to your garden? Never. Can Allah come to your garden? No. Can Allah come to your earth? No. Can you start seeing there's some problems here, folks? I'm going to ask the same question over here of Eric. Eric, does God ever come to earth? Was he there in the garden? Didn't I just read that? Wasn't that God who's walking in the cool of the day? Isn't that God who's calling out to Adam and Eve? If you're walking, Eric, do you have to have a pair of legs? Bingo. If you're yelling out, you better have a pair of lungs, right? All right, so you can see immediately that your God is a little bit different than this God. Does your God ever come to earth? No. Does your God have a pair of legs? Does he ever have human form? Absolutely not. In fact, you'd probably spit at me for saying that if I did that too close to you. Because this is is demeaning of your God, Allah. Your God is totally other. Am I correct? Just say yes. Your God is totally distant, has never come to earth. Where is your God? Right there in the very beginning, he's there on earth. Right there in the very beginning, he's walking and talking in the cool of the day. Right there in the very beginning, he's calling out to Adam and Eve. Why do you think he's calling, where are you, Eric? He already knew where Adam and Eve were. They were hiding, weren't they? So why is he calling out? Just try to think off the top of your head. What do you think the reason he's calling, where are you? He wants a response. He wants them to reveal themselves. That's just a relationship, right? So that means from the very beginning, we were in relationship with God. At one point, we were face to face with God. At one point, we were talking. It says in the cool of the day, this assumes that it happened every day. Every day, God was coming to earth, taking on human form, and had a relationship every day with Adam and Eve. Ooh, I love that. Do you have that today? Is he walking with you? No, he's not. I don't see him. Show me. Is he right here? Does he have a pair of legs? Does he have a body form? No, he doesn't today. He is not really walking and talking with us. Not physically like in the Adam and and uh, in the Garden of Eden. Something went wrong, right? We don't have that relationship face to face with him anymore. Something went wrong. That's why we need to continue with the story. Okay, over here on this side. So something went wrong. You know that something went wrong as well. It's right there. In chapter 2, in chapter 7, in chapter 20, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. All right, immediately we're now showing that we're talking about two different stories, but we're also talking about two different gods. For those two people back there that believe that we have the same God, can you start to see we're not, we don't have the same God? Your God cannot enter time and space. Your God cannot walk and talk with me face to face. Your God has never done that. And if he has never done that, he never will. There is no such thing as a relationship with Allah. So, on this side, your God did that from the very beginning. But did your God also do that through history? Did God ever come down after that period? Yes, he did, didn't he? Was he not wrestling with Jacob? Yeah. Which means your God had a pair of arms as well. If you're wrestling, you better have a pair of arms. You better have a torso, and you better have a pair of legs. So God does take on human form even after that time. But just human form? Was he not leading the children of Israel through the desert as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night? Which means he took on another form, right? What about in Exodus 3? Was he not there with... Moses as a burning bush? That was God, right? Now I'm going to hang the Muslim over here. You've got the same story, don't you? You're starting to get nervous now. You Muslims, are you listening to this? You've got the very same story of the burning bush in chapter 20 and in chapter 27. Open up your Qurans. Well, that's right, you don't have Qurans. You never have Qurans. Every time I talk to you Muslims, you never have a Quran in your hand. How many of these over here, how many of you have Bibles? Let's see, hold up your Bibles or hold up your, your camera. There you have it, you have it on your phones. Look at all these Bibles here. 
why is it all of you have Bibles with you? What's the reason? Because Nathan opens his Bible, does he not? Does he say yes? Please say yes. And he reads from it, does he not? Oh, Nathan, I'm putting you on the hot seat on this one. I didn't ask his permission. Nathan opens his Bible when he's up here, and he better. Why? Because you don't care dilly swat about what he thinks. You don't care dilly swat about what he believes. You want to know what the Bible says, right? And Nathan's responsibility is to come here, open the scriptures, and read them to you, and explain them to you, and apply it to your life. Am I correct? That's what we demand of all of our speakers, and that's why all of you have Bibles in your hands. And God bless you for all having Bibles in your hand. But here's the other thing. The Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, but what, what language are you reading it in? English. Why? Because we can understand it in English. Isn't that interesting? Okay, Muslims on this say, you don't have any Quran, do you? You never carry your Qurans with you because there's nothing, there's no reason to carry Qurans with you because for you to read the Quran, you have to read it in Arabic. How many of you speak Arabic? Because this is not called the Quran. Did you know that? This is not called the Quran. It is called the interpretation of the meaning of the Noble Quran. It's right there on the cover. You cannot, you tell me all the time, you cannot translate from Arabic into English. Therefore, there is no Quran except in Arabic. And yet, how many of you speak Arabic? Only 15% of you all over the world speak Arabic. 85% of you cannot even read this book in your own tongue. That's why you don't carry any Quran with you. But there's another reason. How many of you Muslims have opened up the Quran and tried to read it in English? Now, so a few of you. Okay, sir, let's use you right there. Abdul, you haven't done this? Shame on you. Okay, Ahmed over here, he's better than you. Ahmed, you've got a good beard, that means you're a good Muslim. I love that beard, my goodness. You know what it says in the, in the traditions? He who has a beard the length of one hand is blessed by God. You are blessed by God. Twofold, you've got two lengths there. Okay, Ahmed, real quickly. When you opened the Quran and you read it in English, could you understand it? All of it? Okay, but what you did read, could you understand what you did read? Ooh, well, you're rare. Were there any complete stories? Even the first one, was it complete? Absolutely not. In fact, is there even one complete story in your Quran? There is one. Chapter 12, the story of Joseph, that's it. Your entire Quran, it jumps all over the place, doesn't it? When you read it, Ahmed, it goes from this story, halfway story, it doesn't begin, it doesn't end, and then it jumps to this story, then it jumps to another story, and you're jumping all over the place, you're looking at the prophets here, suddenly you're talking about Issa, you have no idea where to go, the stories don't begin, the stories don't end, and there's no chronology to read you through, and there's no transitional phrases to help you know what story to the other. It is ulta pulta, as we say in India suggesting to me that it has been borrowed from many different sources. Ooh, tu, 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 tu. And that's exactly what we're finding out about your Quran. Don't be smiling. Don't say yes. You, you, might, you should be starting feeling nervous right now, uh, uh, because we're going to destroy your Quran in just about another two or three minutes. Over here on this side, you Christians, when you read the Bible, can you read it all the way through? Does it make sense? Are there complete stories? Not you Muslims. You're not to answer. This is for the Christians only. You've not read the Bible. You don't know what we're talking about here. You have no idea how great this book is. Folks, even without Nathan, can you still read it and understand it? Is there a chronology in the Bible? Do one story follow another? Going from Genesis all the way to Revelation, can you see God's great almighty plan all the way through? All that Nathan is doing is helping you apply it to your lives, right? That's the beauty of this book. And can you read it just as good in English as you can in Greek and Hebrew? Absolutely. Which, when you look and see where the, how many places and how many... In fact, did you know there are over 2,500 translations of this book in, in, so that 93% of the world's population can now read this book in their own mother tongue? Whereas, how many translations do you have in the, over here? I don't even know. I was hoping you'd tell me. It's only about 50 that I'm aware of. Why? Because you don't translate it. It's not translatable. I just read here, it is the interpretation. You can only try to interpret it. Therefore, whenever we get into discussions about the Quran, the first thing you always tell me is, you don't know your Arabic very well. And I say, okay, well, here's the Arabic right here. By the way, make sure if you have a Quran, make sure it's in Arabic and English, okay? Oh, not you people over here. Make sure when you're talking to them, you get one that's Arabic and English. But that's for you people too. Get one that's both languages so you can do a comparison. But here's the funny thing about your book. When was this book written? 
Who knows the answer to that? Any Muslim here knows when this book was written? Go ahead, Ahmed. 600 years after Christ. Okay, so 652, to be more exact. Good man, he knows his material. Well done, Ahmed. I may should have you sit down here at the front. That's okay, just stay right where you are. So Ahmed, it was built, written in 652 by Uthman. Uthman was the one that commissioned it, and Zaid ibn Thabit was the one that actually wrote it down. 652, that's seven, uh, seventh century, all right? If that is the case, and this book has, was complete at that time, right? Though it was revealed to a man named Muhammad, right? Just say yes. So from 610 to 632, revealed to this man that 22-year period, he never wrote it down, did he? Oh, why didn't he write it down? He was, don't say that as a Muslim. Please, don't say that. Even I, as a Christian, would not call Muhammad crazy. He wasn't crazy, he just was a little inept. Okay, let's just use that much. So he was inept, he forgot to write it down. He should have written it down while it was still in his mind, you may right? So it took him 20 years to finally get it written down. 652, now you will tell me that since 652, that's 1400 years ago, that this book has not changed, that every word, every letter is exactly the same in this book that I have in my hand right now as what was revealed to Muhammad. Just say yes. You would agree with that, Abdul. In fact, all you Muslims would agree with that. Just all say yes. All right. Can you find an original manuscript that you can support that with? Not one original manuscript. Oh, you claim that you have an original one. You claim that the Topkapa in Istanbul is original. You say the Ma'il in London is original. You say that the Petropolitan in, in France is original, or the Husseini in uh, uh, Cairo, or the, uh, the Sana manuscript in Yemen, and especially the Samarkand there in Uzbek. You say these are all original, right? But did you notice that you have not no work on them and we're doing the work for you and that not one of them is from the 7th century. They only begin to appear in the 8th century until the 9th century and not one of them is complete and not one of them agrees with each other. Have you not heard this before? This is your book. Why haven't you done your own work on your own book? We have to do the work for you because you believe that this book is eternal. Am I correct? This book has always existed. It is uncreated. Did you know that, Nathan? It's the uncreated Quran. Would we say that about the Bible? Is our Bible eternal? Of course not. Was it written by men? Absolutely. Do we know who wrote it? Yeah, we put the names of the men on the, as the authors on the name of many of the books, don't we? John wrote John, right? Moses wrote the first five books. Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah. David wrote Zabur, or we know him as a psalm. So we know the names of the men who wrote it. We know when they were written. We know that they are written over 1,500 years, so over, over 30 authors in three different languages on three different continents. We make, that, we make that admission from the very beginning, and we know where they were written. We know how they were written, and we have manuscripts for them. Don't we have manuscripts for them? Yeah, we've got the Sinaiticus. We have the Alexandrinus. Uh, we have the Vaticanus, the three major manuscripts that are from the 4th and 5th century. What do you have, Muslims, from the 7th century? It's, it's in a cave buried. Which cave and where is it buried? Over there somewhere. You have no idea. <laughs> Boy, you're getting weaker and weaker as we go on. I ask him which cave and where it is, and he has no idea. That is typical of almost every Muslim I meet. You're just making it up as you go. Some, oh, I see, it's out in the garden. You're, you're giving in more fantastical. And this is typical of most Muslims. You have no idea what you're talking about because there is no manuscript. You make the claims, but you never support what you make. Did you know that? So you need to shut these people down. Just say, if you say the Quran has been 1,400 years, just say, where is it? Show me one example. Give me one manuscript that is from the 7th century. We could give you three from the 4th and 5th century. That's two to 300 years earlier. We can give you 365 manuscripts by the 6th century. We have 24,000 manuscripts, 10,000 Latin Vulgates, 8,600 Greek manuscripts, and others in 11 different languages. How can we have so many thousands of manuscripts and you can only come up with six from the 8th, 9th, and 10th century? And Mar manuscripts, many of them were written on papyrus, which disintegrates. Your manuscripts were written on vellum, on parchment, which is animal skins. And they're just as good today as the day they were written. Yet you can only come up with six. And not one of them is complete. And they don't agree with this Quran, but it gets even worse than that. Are you listening to this, Abdul and Ahmed? 
Where is this book that I have in my hand here? When was this book put together? This specific one. Because this is called the Hafs an Asim Quran. Hafs an Asim. You have, I know you've heard this before. Don't tell me you've not heard this before. This is all over. You've been taught this, that this is the Hafs. This is the standardized text. Standardized when? Hmm. You would say standardized by Uthman, right? In 652. That's what you would tell me. The man that wrote this book, his name's Hafs. He died in 796. That's quite a bit later than, six, than 652, right? He lived in Kufa. He didn't live in Mecca, Medina. He lived 144 years after Muhammad, and this is your book that you now say is the standard book. Well, I want to show you this one right here. So this is the Hafsan Asim. Here I have it in Arabic. You can come up and read it. You can see this is written by him. What about this one right here? Different color, different name. His name is Warsh. He died in 812. He was from Cairo, which is in Egypt. This man was in Kufa, which is today just south of Baghdad in Iraq, hundreds of miles north of Mecca and Medina, two completely different Qurans, both in Arabic. These aren't translations. These are original Qurans. This one is from 812. This one is from 796. Yet you both say they're exactly the same Quran, right? No, they're not. Over 5,000 different words between these two books. That means 5,000 different sentences, which means 5,000 different meanings, which means 5,000 different, different doctrines, different practices, different theology. Now, these are just two. We have now found 30 different Qurans from five different cities, six, excuse me, six different cities, written in Cairo, also in Iraq, Kufa, in Basra, Mecca, Medina, and Damascus, Syria. Can you see the problem, folks? You've never heard this before, have you, Muslims? We held them up in 2016 at Speaker's Corner. Hatun Tasu's and my colleague found 26 of them. You're just going around. You can get these. You can buy these online, folks. These are still being printed today. And when you look at the other 29 versus this one, which is the Hafs, there are 93,000 different words, 93,000 different meanings, 93,000 different doctrines and theology, and yes, even practices. And this is the first time you've ever heard it, and yet you've been Muslims all your life. Well, actually, just for a few minutes. But nonetheless, you understand my problem, your problem. Well, what does this do to your Quran? How can this be eternal? if it has been manipulated and changed and corrupted and created and deleted. In fact, for, from the 8th century, because this first started being put together in the 8th century, the earliest that this was put together was 736, all the way up until, nine, uh, until the 10th century, 936, over 700 different Qurans existed by the 10th century of your Quran. We're now finding all of this out in just the last few years. And one man named Ibn, Ibn Mujahid had to, put, had to choose seven out of the 700. That still wasn't enough because this book wasn't in that category, nor is this book in that category. So another 14 had to be chosen in the 12th century in 1194. That still wasn't good enough. So they had to choose another nine in the 15th century in 1429. That's 800 years after Muhammad. And finally, they chose 30 different Qurans for this eternal book that has never, ever been touched by human hands. It's been manipulated hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact. 800 years to be fair. It became such a problem that in 1924 in Cairo, when they were having standardized tests uh, for students in high school level, they were getting so many different answers that they had to realize they had to do something. So they went to a man in Al-Hazar University named Muhammad ibn Al-Huzaini Al-Haddad, and they asked him, could you just choose one? And he chose this one, which is the Hafs al-Asam. He chose this one in 1924. Folks, that's 99 years ago this book was chosen as just the canonized text for Cairo, just one city. But that became so successful, but they took the other 29 Qurans and they threw them into the Nile River, hoping that by drowning them, that would get rid of them. Now, of course, it did not get rid of them because that was just for Cairo. By 1936, they made this book the official text 
for all of Egypt. That became so successful that the Saudi Arabian government in 1985 decided to make this book the official text for the entire world. How many people were living in 1985? Raise your hands. Every one of you that's raised your hand, you are older than this Quran. How old does that make you feel? Are you beginning to see that the Muslims have a problem, don't they? Do we have this problem with the Bible? Absolutely not. Thank God we know who wrote this book. Thank God we don't make that claim. Thank God we know exactly when it was written. Thank God we have tens of thousands, and I say tens of thousands of manuscripts that we can look at, and we know where exactly, if there are any differences, we know exactly where they are, and every difference that we can find does not change one doctrine whatsoever. Did you hear that? None of the changes that we have found, these are copyist errors, change one doctrine. Look at the tens of thousands that are changing their doctrines. Now, can you see a difficulty immediately? We're talking about two different gods. We're also talking about two different scriptures. I said that your God cannot enter time and space, right? I said that at the very beginning. You heard me say that, right? I want to go back to your Quran, this Quran that's very inadequate, this Quran here, and I want to go back to chapter 20, Abdul, because in chapter 20, I know you've read it, it's the story, the very same story that we have over here about the burning bush. And there you see Moses in your story, and he sees a fire in the distance, and he wants to bring the fire back so that he can heat his fire, uh, his own tent. He gets close to the fire, and he sees that it's a bush that is burning. Very much similar to our story, isn't it, Eric? But in your story, a voice comes within the fire, and it says to Moses, Moise, Moise, take off your shoes, for you are on holy ground. Now let me ask you, Abdul, if it's holy ground, does that mean God's there? It would have to be, right? Can there be holy ground without God? No, by definition. By definition, if it's holy ground, God has to be there, right? Is that God in that bush? Is Allah in that bush? Now you say, no, 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 no. no. Why don't you read verse 14? Chapter 20, I just read verse 10. Go to verse 14. And the voice within the, the bush says to Moses, for truly, this is Allah who is speaking to you. Can anybody take on the name of Allah except Allah himself? So is Allah in that bush? Ooh, doo -doo 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 -doo. You've got a problem here, aren't you? How are you going to answer that? If you say, no, that's not Allah in that bush, you better tear that out of the Quran. What happens to you when you tear things out of the Quran? You don't live very long, do you? So you can't tear it out of the Quran. You've got to deal with it. You've got to answer this question, Abdul. Obviously, that has to be Allah in that bush, right? So if Allah is in that bush there in 1400 BC, because Moses is on the earth, if Allah is in that bush, then why in the world do you have such a problem with God coming 2,000 years ago, taking on human form and dying on the cross? You're starting to hurt. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. Can you see how difficult this is for Muslims? Even their Quran shows them that Allah can come to earth. But who is it that has to come to earth? can't be just anybody. Because we know that Genesis chapter 3, Eric, as I've just read, look at verse 15. You've got a problem here. Adam and Eve are hiding from God. They don't want to see God. God's telling them to come out. And then what does he do? He turns to Eve. You're going to be my Eve, all right? He says to Eve, from your line, now hold on a minute. That means it has to be from a woman's line. Why? Because Eve is the first to sin. But salvation is going to come through a woman. From Eve's line, he turns to her and he says to Eve, someone's going to come, he, that means it's going to be a male, is going to come and crush the head of Satan. What does that do? You crush someone's head, you kill it. You destroy it, right? But Satan's going to bruise his heel. His heel. So Eve, someone's going to come from your line. Who is that someone? Well, that's the beauty of the Bible. See, the Bible goes and tells us who that person is. And over and over again, am I not correct? It says that this is going to be the Son of God. He's going to be called the Messiah. He's going to be called the Son of Man. All these different titles. We need to look. Now remember, not a Son of Man. You're a Son of Man. You're a Daughter of Man. But only the Son of Man is who we're looking for. The Messiah, not a Messiah. There were many Messiahs. But the Messiah, definite article, is who we need to look for. The Son of God. The Son of Man. The Messiah. And it... Then we get to Isaiah. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah makes it more specific. He said, this will be a sign. Are you Muslims listening? Yes. This is for you as well. This will be a sign. A virgin, not just any woman, a virgin will conceive. Now hold on, folks. Virgins do not conceive in my world. Do they in your world? If a virgin is conceiving, she's no longer a virgin. Am I correct? So this means there has to be a miracle going on here. This is something that's supernatural. This is something above nature. 
a virgin will conceive, and okay, Muslims, has there ever been a virgin that's conceived in your Quran? There is. In chapter 19, verse 20, right? In chapter 19, Abdul, Ahmed, are you listening? Chapter 19, verse 20, a virgin, who is her name? What's her name? Miriam. And who is it that she conceived? Issa. Am I correct? Just say yes. Remember, you're obedient, you're submissive. It is Issa who she conceived as a virgin. It's in your Quran. Ooh, I love that. Use that as a bridge. Are you listening to this? So a virgin will conceive. She's in the line of Eve, and she will have a son. He. It's going to be a son. And what's his name going to be? He shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. Are you listening to that, Muslims? When Maryam conceives Issa, God is with us. That is God who she conceives. Ooh, I love that. Ooh, but wait a minute. You still have some problems because the Jews had problems with this guy that was called Yeshua. Matthew chapter 26. Remember in Matthew chapter 26, Caiaphas is there and he's there. He is trialing. There is Jesus in the trial with, with Caiaphas and he's there in front of the Sanhedrin. And there in Matthew chapter 26, Caiaphas asks him two questions. You remember this, Nathan? He says, are you the Messiah? There is the definite article. Are you the Son of God? There's a definite article. Not a, you are. He's asking specifically because as a Jew, he knows that they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? The Son of God. That means he is from God himself. That means he represents everything that God represents. And that means he represents his divinity. The Messiah. What is the function? Well, every Jew knows that the function for the Messiah is the anointed one. Anointed to what? Anointed to save. Who can save but God? Only God can save. He asked that of Jesus there in the Garden of Eden. Sorry, in not the Garden of Eden. Boy, I've got that really confused. Thank God I'm not God. He would not make that mistake. There in the Sanhedrin. And what did Jesus say? It is as you say. He accepted both those titles. But then he did an interesting thing. He didn't stop there. Now, you Muslims, you're always attacking the Son of God. You're always attacking the Messiah. But you know that in your Quran, Issa, his title is the Messiah. Am I, am I correct? Al-Masihu, he is the Messiah, 11 times. In fact, only he is given that title. So you know he has to be the Messiah that the Jews are looking for. But more than that, you always love to come and hang Marie because you always say that the most popular title that he uses, that Jesus uses, is the Son of Man. Over and over again, 25 times he uses the Son of Man, proving Dr. Smith that he's nothing more than a man. Boy, are you wrong. Ask any question, because you, if you have any question about who the Son of Man is, you're told in chapter 10, verse 94, you're told in chapter 21, verse 7, if you have any questions, come across the aisle and ask these people on this side. And Eric will tell you who the Son of Man is, because it's right there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Did you notice I said Isaiah 7, 14? 7 is the, whole, the holy number, tumble, double 7 is 14. Notice I'm now using I'm, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. I'm making it as easy as I can for you Christians. 7 is the holy number, double that is 14. And what does does it say there about the Son of Man? It defines who the Son of Man is. For he shall be from everlasting to everlasting. Abdul, can anybody but God be from everlasting to everlasting? Only God can, right? See, you're starting to come through. You're starting to move over this way. I can see that. He shall have dominion over all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues. Often, only God can do that, have nation, have authority over all tribes, nations, and people. You agree with that, don't you? You're starting to come this direction as well. Are you noticing that? Can you see, folks, when Jesus defined the Son of Man, he was defining and basically he was saying, I am God. And there in the Sanhedrin, he was saying, I am God three times. I am God. I am God. I am God. What did Caiaphas do? He tore his robe, turned towards the Sanhedrin and said, what for the proof do we mean this man has blasphemed? Because he was taking three divine names. But that's still not the best one. That's still not the greatest one. There is a name for God that you Muslims have no idea about. See, you call God Allah. The God. That's all it means. It's generic. In fact, it's not a name. It's a title. The God. But what's his name? Abdul, what's his name? Ahmed, what's his name? See, I'm the man, right? There's the woman. But that's not our name. We have names, don't we? Which man? There are all kinds of men here. There's all kinds of women here. I want to know what my name is. And see, Moses wanted to know what God's name was. Am I correct? In Exodus 3, 
God was sending him down to Egypt. He didn't want to go down to Egypt. He tried five different ways to get out of going down to Egypt. And finally, he turns to God, and he says, what is your name? He wanted to know what God's name is. So I want to ask you Muslims again, what is that name that he told Moses? Uh, he didn't speak English back then, I'm afraid. I don't even think English existed back then, so it's not I am. What is it in Hebrew? Yahweh. Yahweh. Just four letters. Yahweh. It could be Yeshua. It could be Yehovah. You're right. But it's, most scholars believe it is Yahweh. You have to put the vowels where you want. Yahweh. And then what did God say then to Moses when he gave him his name? This shall be my name from generation to generation. For this shall be my name forever. Which means it's still God's name today, am I correct? Still God's name today. So if you believe Muhammad is your greatest and final prophet, if you believe he is the one that supersedes all the other prophets, why didn't he know that name? He didn't know that name, did he? You won't find that name anywhere in the Quran at all. That name does not exist in the Quran. It does not exist in the Hadith, the, the sayings of Muhammad. It does not exist in his Sirah, that his biography. You won't find in any of the traditions that name. That name, yet, you will find right through this book. Remember, in this book, you have really three major names for God. You have, you have Adonai, which is the, the um, uh, descriptive name for God, and that's found about 300 times in the Bible. Not that important. You have Elohim, which is the closest you can get to what you're talking about because that's the generic title. The gods, but it's interesting, Nathan, isn't this correct? It's not singular, that'd be Eloi. It's not dual, that'd be Eloha. It's Elohim, which means three or more, am I correct? So this is a pearl name for God, and it's the one that you see right there in the very first verse, but that still wasn't good enough for Moses. That still wasn't good enough for God in Exodus, 13, Exodus 3. He wanted him to find, he wanted him the personal name for God. Elohim is found about a little over 2,400 times. A lot more than Adonai, but still not great. Yahweh, if you look at Yahweh in the Bible, does anybody know how many times that's found in the Old Testament? No? 6,823 times. 6,000 times you'll see that. So the question, Eric, is this. Jesus knew that name, didn't he? Did Jesus ever use that name? Anybody know? Where did he use that? John chapter 8. He's there in the temple, right? So he's speaking Hebrew, not English. He's speaking Hebrew. He's being confronted. He's talking about Abraham as if he knew him. And the Jews turned to him and says, how do you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And what did he say? Before Abraham was, I am Yahweh. He used that name. He was applying it to himself. He took on that name. And the Jews picked up stones to stone. What a God we have got. See, our God enters time and space. Your God doesn't. Our God is able to relate to us face to face. Your God cannot. Our God always related us face to face because he came over and over and over again. We call these theophanies all the way through the Old Testament. And finally, he came 2,000 years ago, entered time and space, spent 33 years on earth, and our God dies for us. What has your God done for you? Not a thing. Your God can't even talk to you. When you pray to God five times a day, it's one-way direction, right? God never answers to your prayers because you are an Abduls. Abduls means slaves. Abdullah, slave of God. You are slaves of God. But we are children of God. Slaves of God do not talk to their God except one way. They only capitulate to God. That's why your prayers are exactly the same five times a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and three times in the evening. The exact same prayer every day because that's what slaves do. You are obedient. You are submissive. That's what you do. You obey all these rules and regulations. That's what you do as slaves. But we are children of God, which means we can actually talk to God and God responds to us. Every time you pray, God responds to you. We children of God. We can even argue with God. We can criticize God. And yes, we can even reject God. Can you reject Allah? On pain of death. Chapter 4, verse 89 in your Quran says, he who leaves, who leaves Islam and becomes an apostate must be put to death. Oh, I love the prodigal son story. Isn't it a great story? The son rejects his father, right? Goes off into a faraway land. What does the father do? The father is God, the sons are us. We are the sons, we reject God. What does the father do? Does he reject the son? No, he stays at the door, looking in the distance, waiting day after day, waiting for the son to come home. And when he sees the son in the distance, he runs out, he hugs the son, and he has a banquet. That's my daddy. Yes, that's my daddy, Abba, that means daddy. 
That's the kind of God we have. You want that kind of God? You want to come over this side? Should we bring him back home again? I want every one of you to say, Jesus is Lord. Come on with a real passion. Jesus is Lord. Everybody say, Jesus is Lord. What a God we have. We do not share your God. We do not share your prophetic line. We do not share your revelation. You notice my Bible is always bigger than my Quran for a very good reason. It's the bitter, it's the bigger, the better book. This one is absolutely hopeless. You can't even find the originals, and it's been recycled all over the world in 30 different copies. Can you see? We thank God that he has given us his word because we can understand it. We can read it in any language. Nathan can apply it and put it to your lives. But this is why we carry this everywhere we go. We need to get into these discussions. Abdul, you need to start using your Bible. You need to start helping Muslims. You need to bring them back home again because that's everything we're doing. We are bringing them home. We're bringing them back from Allah back to Yahweh. We're taking them away from Issa back to Yeshua. We're taking them away from the Quran and bringing them back to the New Testament, back to the Bible. Folks, can you see in every category, we have it better because our God is a relational God. Our God enters time and space. When you get to heaven, when you get to paradise, what's waiting for you Muslims? Women are waiting for you. It's a carnal heaven. What about you women? What's waiting for you women there? Not a thing. When we get to heaven, do you want women guys? Is that what you're interested? Wine, women, and song? You can go to Las Vegas and get it there. You want wine, women, song? Then leave. But what's waiting for all of us men and women in heaven? Not wine, women, and song. Jesus. Jesus is waiting for us. And that Jesus is walking and talking to with us for eternity. I want a God that walks with me. I want a God that talks with me. I want a God that sacrifices himself for me. I want a God that comes and humbles himself, dies on the cross and rises again. And because of that, death was destroyed. That's my God. What a God. That's the God all the Muslims need to hear. Everybody needs to hear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a God you are. You're a God who came our direction. From the very beginning, you've been coming our direction, and right through history, you continue to come over and over again. You did not leave us alone. You did not forget us. You are a God that loves us. And as a loving father will do with his child, in every case, you stand at the door and you're waiting for us to return home. And Lord, we do want to come home, but we want to bring as many Muslims, we want to bring as many atheists and humanists, we want to bring as many others that still don't know you back to know who you are. Because then we will be in relationship as Adam and Eve were in the very beginning, there in Genesis 3. We want to have that, but even better, because we know we're going to be with you in eternity. We want a little bit of our steak on our plate for our, when we, as we wait, but I can't wait for the pie in the sky when I die. That's when we're really with you. And Lord, we want you to help us to be able to get this message about who you are to as many people as possible in every conversation we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody. That was a lot of information, but valuable information. And if you weren't taking notes fast enough, we're going to have the video on our YouTube page. I encourage you to go back and, and listen again because we are called to be lights of the gospel in this world. Not just to Muslims, but yes, to Muslims as well. And we have the hope of Jesus Christ. We have the word of God, which is true. And we have the Holy Spirit in us, guiding us and directing us. And so equip yourself. The whole reason we've started, you know, getting excited about gospel tracks and trying to equip you guys and resource you guys is so that we could go out into the world and rescue those who are lost. And we have people in our lives every moment that don't know Jesus Christ. And I'm sure many of us, and I would venture to say every single one of us, have coworkers, friends, people in our lives who believe uh, Islam is true. And we have an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. I pray today blessed you. I pray today encouraged you, equipped you, educated you. And I pray that you have the tools necessary today to go from here, ready to share in love, in kindness, in compassion, but with confidence and boldness, the truth of Jesus Christ. Amen? God bless you guys.